The reason people aren't financially free is they don't know what to do and they don't know where to start. I want you to join Joey and I at the Virtual Inner Circle Live April the 4th through the 6th as we share with you the exact answers to those questions. We only do this event one time per year. I don't want you to miss out. Go to westwatwallstreet.com forward slash live and enter promo code podcast. When you're at this event, you're going to get your investor DNA. You're going to get access to up to six different passive income strategies. So you know, leaving this event, exactly what to do, taking our decades of knowledge so that you can start becoming financially free. Go to wealthwhitewallstreet.com forward slash live and enter the promo code podcast. Russ, I absolutely had a blast on this podcast with Kelly Iannone as our guest. And the reason is I'm such a math nerd. I love math. And what was it that was the impetus for her big change in her financial world? Just stopping to do the math. Now, if you haven't stopped to figure out what is my financial freedom journey going to lead to, if I keep doing what I'm doing, I want to call you to action right now. If you're not watching this live, then go to our website and go to retirementguide.wealthwithoutwallstreet.com. It's going to be in the show notes and do the math yourself, right? So Russ, tell to walk us through this calculator real quick. Well, here's the thing. We interviewed so many people in our past about what does it take to become financially free? And we had the premier expert on the subject matter. There was an old thing called the 4% rule. Maybe you've heard this before that it, whatever account balance I have, if I took out 4% out of it over a 20 year period of time, I had a hundred percent chance of not running out of money. If I took out more than that, or if I went longer than that, that's when the percentages or probabilities that I would run out of money would be less than 100%. I don't know about any of you, but I don't want to have the chance I'm going to run out of money when I have stopped working for money, right? What's the biggest fear, 100%? People in in the Wall Street model have always decided that, oh, I need so much money in my account. And that's why they never knew how much money they needed because they never had a calculator. You and I built a calculator for this very thing. It's pretty easy, actually. So I'm going to show you an example here. Let's just say, Stallion, you're 40 years old, and you want to become financially free by age 50, right? You're listening to us. You're like, 10 years. I'm going to crush for 10 years, and then I'm going to become financially free. I'm making $150,000 a year, and I am saving 10%. I am crushing it. And, you know, I've been doing this for like the last 20 years. I've built up my account balance to have $450,000 in it. You know, my 401ks never look so good. (sighs) Now, when we use this calculator and we use the concepts that Wade Fowle said, hey, the 4% rule truly has failed the American population. One, because they end up having to work until their 70s or 80s. Second is that the 4% rule has gone away. We are starting to see where because of low interest rate environment for an extended period of time, it's caused people to have to go to the 3% rule. So with our calculator, we did the 3% rule. If you're making $150,000 in order to take out 3% out of account, that means you need 5 million. Take 5 million times 3%, that's 150,000. See where the math came from. Well, if you were sitting in this person's seat, if you were sitting there with $450,000 and you had, you know, you're age 40, how long is it going to actually take you to become financially free? And you hit the little calculate button, Joey. Unfortunately for this individual, instead of being able to retire at age 50, it's age 74. Mm. That's a, that's a wake-up call. That is an absolute wake-up call. Well, if you're ready to know how our guest 
understood this at an early uh, earlier age, thankfully, than age 74. And what she did to switch her path to becoming financially free, the, uh, don't wait any longer. Let's jump in right now with our guest, Kelly Iano. Welcome to the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast, your guide to understanding how to get out of the Wall Street rat race and start your own mailbox money lifestyle. Now, don't let these handsome Southern draws fool you. These financial minds are teaching our country to enhance savings, increase cash flow, and create passive income, all without the help of Wall Street. Are you ready to break through? Now, here are your hosts, Russ Morgan and Joey Murray. Wealth Without Wall Street Tribe, so excited to introduce you to Kelly Iannone today on the show. Kelly, so glad to have you here. Thanks. I'm glad to be here, Joey and Russ. It, we had a, a little bit of a uh, time to catch up before the show, but for those who are hearing you for the first time, typically uh, our audience is someone who's listening for a way to get out of the rat race. And I know just I was having a conversation about this, you mentioned that there was a, like a series of events that little small things that had just kind of crept up to a point where you and your husband are like, no more, we have to make a change. Would you let us in on what was going on? Yeah, absolutely. It was probably about 10 years into my corporate career. And we had just started a young family. We were going through some custody stuff with his oldest, with his um, oldest child. And we really had this realization as we were looking through everything that we weren't saving enough for retirement in order to retire in a, in a way that I saw my parents retire at the age of 50. We weren't going to hit a 55 target retirement date. And so we had this moment that we had to change things. When you say you, you didn't feel like you were going to be able to hit that number, I mean, one, I think everybody would be like, wait a second, I, if I could retire at 50 or 55, that sounds good. I mean, because most people are on a path of 85, especially if they've used our retirement calculator to do the math. What is it that identified, I mean, how did you come to that realization? How did you know that you were not going to hit that number? What What were you looking at? What were the metrics that you were looking at? Well, we were tracking our net worth. And when we were looking at our budget, we realized that we weren't beyond saving into our 401ks, maybe 10%. We weren't saving anything extra. We were spending it all on our kids' childcare. We were spending it all on our food and going out to eat and just our lifestyle. And we weren't saving anything over and above again, that like 10%. And when you just look at calculators and projecting out how much you need to retire on, if you're following the typical safe withdrawal rate of 4%, and some would argue that's 3.5% these days, there, the, it was a math problem. The math wasn't there. The math wasn't going to work. And by the way, just for those who are listening to this, has never done that. We we actually built that retirement calculator. We we had a chance, Kelly, to interview Wade Fowle, like one of the foremost experts on the safe withdrawal rate. And yeah, when we were talking to him, he said more like three <laughs> percent. You know, obviously interest rates have now ticked up a little bit. Maybe that's creeping back up. But when you use our calculator, it helps people understand what it takes. So to Kelly's point, if you had a million dollars in an account and you were taking out using the 4% withdrawal rate, that means you could spend $40,000 a year with the guarantee of not running out of money for 20 years. And I don't know about for you guys, 40,000 just doesn't work for my family of six very, very long. We might be able to get through a month and a half, and then we're going to figure out what are we going to do for the rest of the year, right? Well, not, so, not even considering, Russ, the, the impact of inflation 
I mean, it, you talk to somebody three or four years ago and say $40,000. And now you say it three or four years later and $40,000 is a drop in the bucket compared to what it was even that long ago. So can you imagine what 20 years from now that might look like? Right. right? Crazy, crazy. Man. I mean, that's yeah. just, it's just, there's no hope in that strategy. So, so you're, you're looking at that and you're evaluating it and being that you've been up to this point, you said you've been working in corporate America. Talk a little bit about what you've been doing and Obviously, you were saving in the typical places that most people are taught to be saving. How do you and your husband re- figure out what to do next? Yeah, so I was on that very traditional path that you know, kind of American society tells us we need to pat, we need to take, go to college, get a good job, and work until you're sixty-five, typical retirement age, seventy-two. And again, I was about 10 years into that path. I wanted to be an executive, corporate America, wear suits all day, like it was going to be all grand. And then I I realized it wasn't fulfilling for me, that it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And I didn't want to dedicate my life to that, especially at the executive level where it really becomes your life. That wasn't fulfilling. That's not what I wanted for me. It wasn't what I wanted for my family. And so when my husband and I had this realization, again, it was a bunch of little things that kind of came together that made us go, whoa, we need to do something differently. We pretty much right then and there made the commitment that we were going to figure out how to continue to earn two incomes, but live on one. And we did that through a very methodical process. We we had two young kids who were in daycare at that point in time. And we knew the next year or two, they were going to be going from daycare to public school. And we were living in a good area with good public schools. That's $1,000 a month per kid that we're automatically weren't going to spend anymore. So we allocated all that to spending and we just very methodically put that plan into place. Well, and so talk about that was a, that was more of a defense strategy as I think Mm -hmm. about it. It's like, Oh, we've got this expense that is going to go away and now we can potentially live off of two or one income and and save the other one. But now it, it begs the question of where do you go from there? Just putting money in a, in a in your mattress, putting money in the checking account. Like what what's the alternative that you guys committed to at that point? And maybe it wasn't clear at that point, but maybe it was just right down the road. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. That was the defensive strategy. We had to first grow the gap between our income and our expenses. That was the defensive strategy. And then once we grew that gap and had a larger sum of money that we could continually see, continuously invest over time, you know, that was where the real power was going to be. And so Initially, we didn't know what we were going to do with it besides besides investing. Um, I started doing a lot of research online. This was back in 2017. I found the really the FIRE community. I had always kind of subscribed to this. And granted, my parents retired at 50. To me, that was normal. They invested in their 401ks. They worked at the same cut job for 15, 20 years. They both had pensions. That was kind of what I grew up with. Very different than what my husband's family grew up with, but that was kind of what I saw. And so that's kind of where my goals were. But I found the FIRE community. And at that point, I realized that I wasn't the only one out there who was feeling this way and was looking for these different opportunities of how to really optimize investments. But by and large, what you see in the FIRE community is invest in low fee index funds, which is very valid. And it's a great way to passive, you know, get passive investments, if you will, and just kind of let's just keep with the market, keep our fees low, and we can just continue, continuously invest over time and you, you'll you make it to your goal. But after we kind of looked at that and we knew we wanted to do something in real estate, but 
we had a lot of limiting beliefs. And so when we started really diving in, I found bigger pockets, learned a lot from them, joined a local real estate group, and really determined that instead of leaning in heavily on low fee index funds, which mind you, that's where all of our 401k funds are currently at, and we switched those over, but instead of putting all that extra capital that we were then going to be able to offensively attack our goals of re early retirement, we allocated that to real estate because we saw real estate and looking at the numbers that it was a, a great accelerator of wealth and of that path. Okay, hold on. I, I got to jump in. First of all, Kelly, the name of our show is Wealth Without Wall Street. <laughs> so I'm going to challenge you on the validity of the index fund strategy. If you want to be financially free, living financially free, what there was a reason that you picked real estate and you said it for acceleration. Talk more about that because I really think that there is a, a misnomer out there that you can become financially free by using this, this Wall Street you know, um, vehicle when in actuality, you're playing the game at a different level. It's not necessarily, oh, I want to do it you know, for 40 years now, but they're trying to play this game of using the market to get them to some goal. And to be honest, obviously our show exists for the reason of it's a rigged system. Right, so right? so the, the question that he's asking you, I don't want it to be missed in here. <laughs> you said we decided on real estate as an accelerator. Talk about how you saw real estate as an accelerator. I think it's going to answer his long winded question. Again, it goes to math. <laughs> it, we talked earlier about the safe withdrawal rate, which is all about investing in the stock market. And that's 4%, arguably 3%. And on a million dollar portfolio, that's 30 to maybe $40,000. But again, you also mentioned, Russ, that will only last 20 years. When we look at real estate, there's a lot more control we have in real estate. We have no control over what we invest in on Wall Street. When we look at real estate, we have so much control. We have the market to understanding the market and that data. And we have control of how we are going to select deals, how we're going to underwrite deals and how we're going to buy deals and finance them. When I look at typical real estate deals, and again, this is, this is the discovery that I went through back in 1718 was it's very common and fairly easy to find deals that I can easily get a seven, eight, 9% cash on cash return while holding a property. So now that same million dollars that you could put in the stock market and take a three to 4% safe withdrawal rate, 30 to 40,000, you can put it into real estate and find those deals and now get seven, nine, 10%. So living on 70 to hundred thousand dollars a year. And that doesn't even touch all the tax advantages. Well, well let's, let's talk too about like when you, the, the first real estate deal you did was what? It was converting our primary residence into a rental. Perfect. And whenever you did that, did they uh, did they did they pay you an accumulation like in future dollars or did they pay you actually monthly de deposits into your checking account? The the tenants? Yeah. The tenants, I get rent. So you, it goes into my checking account. It, pays so it wasn't this piece of paper that said that you had money. You actually could like open Act your bank account and spend it. Right. Like there's a, I think there's a significant difference. Right. Because it's not a theoretical. What will I be able to withdraw it at? I actually know I can withdraw whatever's in that account right this second. Absolutely. OK, so you did that. What was the next thing that you did? 
So we did that first property and then we really started getting involved in our local community and other meeting other real estate folks because keep in mind that at that point in time both myself and my husband we worked in corporate america you don't talk about real estate you don't talk about retirement i worked at the house of the mouse worked at the walt disney company everybody loves working at disney and everybody wants to work at disney and it's a great magical place don't get me wrong but it is a company and it is a for-profit company like any other company but people don't talk about investing for retirement it's just not a conversation so we had to surround ourselves with people who were starting to think about real estate as investment option and really like-minded folks and who we wanted to become your network is your net worth and so that's how we started getting involved and then that involved that evolved really into getting more comfortable we did a flip with partners we passively invested in a syndication deal and then we looked at a bunch of niches within real estate to try to understand what made sense based on our goals so talk a talk a minute about that experience okay you got two corporate people that are now getting into an unknown territory it's e it's somewhat easy to shift hey my primary residence is now a rental mm -hmm. you know it's a known thing it's like hey i live here i can move out and now this becomes a cash flow machine because i can do the math on what i can charge in rent and what i know what my expenses are right so there's a, a fairly small jump from where you were to then that first rental but then there's a gap, a massive chasm between that and going and learning all these different niches. So talk about some beneficial things that you did by, because it's, it's easy to just gloss over and say, oh yeah, we went and got involved in a local real estate meetup. What does that even look like for somebody that's never been there and they maybe have the same background you do? Like what were some things that were beneficial to you in that process? Yeah, so again, I mentioned bigger pockets. As I went down the fire rabbit hole, <laughs> it's called the fire rabbit hole, I found a variety of podcasts and websites that I really started becoming obsessive about the content and reading and listening to. And bigger pockets ultimately ended up being one of those that through one of these other websites, I found bigger pockets, which is all about real estate investing. And they've they've expanded a bit into financial literacy as well. But that allowed me to be online on the forums which anybody can go and ask questions and you have people that are much more active and knowledgeable and have a lot more experience in real estate can answer questions and then also they have an events page and on the events page they have local events that local people host it's not sponsored by them but local people host and so i, I simply went on there and found one that fit with our availability because again my husband and I had corporate jobs. We have little kids at the time, very little kids. And so we needed something in the evenings or weekends. We also recognized we didn't want to go to a meetup that was just going to be one big sales pitch. We really wanted a collaborative environment, very encouraging, where everybody's trying to kind of meet the same goals and you know similar paths. And so we started going to it. And it was probably about a year and a half before we did our next deal because it was all about education. Well, in that process, as you're educating yourself, how much more confident were you? Like, were you able to confidently not only invest, but to share that with other people? Because my guess is, is that there, you said you were surrounded by people that weren't on this journey and they've got to start challenging you. Like, Kelly, what makes you believe that you can be a real estate investor? I've known you all of these years. You're this person, right? Whatever that person is to them. How, how, 
talk a little bit about that confidence level. Cause I think a lot of people listening right now are experiencing that imposter syndrome. They're like, I don't know if I can do that. Maybe I don't have the pedigree that Kelly did. Maybe I don't have the, the network that, uh, that Kelly did. Talk a little bit about that process. I think that's so important. I think I very quickly realized I needed to compartmentalize these two lives. I really had two lives going in parallel. I had my corporate life and I was very focused on climbing the corporate ladder because as long as I was going to work, I was going to make as much money as I could and grow as much as I could because that just allowed us to to put even more capital into achieving financial independence. but I also very quickly realized that when I was in my day to day and I and I had teams of we call them cast members, employees who would report to me. And when I would talk about these things, there was never really any questions. Nobody was really interested to talk about it. I never got any questions. I never really got told, you know, that's dumb. You're going to lose all this money. It's super risky. Um, but really, there was just a very a lack of engagement. But I did for Christmas, I'd give people books like The Simple Path to Wealth, and I'd give my team books for Christmas on financial independence. So I had to compartmentalize these two, these two sides of my life. And the real estate and having this peer group of people who were trying to get into it or who were already established into it, they became a much larger part of my world. If you've listened to our show for any length of time, you've heard us talk about infinite banking and how we were able to use that concept to create over $50,000 a month in passive income. But it's just not that easy to figure out how does this all connect into my own personal system? Stallion, that's why we created the Passive Income Operating System, bro. It shows you how to turn active income into passive income. It makes all the steps come together. If you would like to get access to it as a podcast listener, we've never given this away in public before. Go to whatswhatwallstreet.com forward slash P-I-O-S. There was nothing worse than walking into class when you're in school and the teacher saying, pop quiz day. Why? Because you were unprepared. Are you unprepared, though, for financial freedom? Don't be. Find out how close you are by taking our 30-second quiz at wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash quiz. Now, you talked a little bit about the FIRE community, the financial independence retire early, right? In there, there's different versions of that. And some are really trying to live really uh, below their means and trying to find more efficient ways, if you will, to a simpler way of life. And then there's others that are going out there trying to figure out ways that they can grow their income streams to afford anything in any trip that they want to go on. How did you find your fit in that? Like what, what was that pathway? What were you learning with just within that community alone that maybe helped you? Yeah. So I like to think about that as lean fire, fire and fat fire. And well, it would be great to be able to live on $200,000 a year plus and have all these, you know, great things. I don't want to slave away until I'm 65 just to get there. So, but I also, but I also very much don't want to never be able to go out to eat, not go on vacations and live a, what we call lean fire lifestyle. So for my husband and I, it was really, how do we maintain our current lifestyle? And granted, this was our current lifestyle after we took a very critical look at our lifestyle and being able to live again from two incomes to one income and being able to live on one salary. 
and we were comfortable. We didn't feel deprived. We live in a great home in a nice neighborhood in a great city. We go out to eat a moderate amount. You know, we, we buy whatever groceries we want. We don't really worry about that, but we don't add on all of the extravagant things and we don't have a bunch of car debts and stuff. And so we really just had to take a critical look of what we wanted and understand what that lifestyle was. And we, I like to call it lifestyle design. One day when these, when these investments continue to go full cycle and full cycle, we'll be fat fire. Like it's inevitable. It's inevitable. And I'm sure the people in your community know that. But today, in order to have the flexibility and the freedom of time, you know, you're going to maybe live a little bit more frugal of a lifestyle. But again, it's not lean, lean fire for us, but it's a little bit, you know, we're keeping a little closer eye on it. But my kids don't want for anything. That's awesome. Yeah, I love the perspective that you guys have gone into this with it first making some very important choices about lifestyle that then has led to there is a, a much bigger vision of the future, but we're just content while we get there. You know, it's a, it's a not get rich quick scheme. It's a get rich slow. And we always talk about that. That's really um, one of the only reliable ways to wealth, in my opinion, otherwise it's just kind of on accident or it's short lived in some cases, you know, somebody um, makes decisions that don't really aren't sustainable. Um, I want to talk back to your engaging in this local community on the real estate side and people can look at you now and say, oh, wow, Kelly's super mm -hmm. successful. She's getting involved in these large um, syndications in the apartment you know, uh, realm and she's done some flips and all this. Talk about something that didn't go so well that you learned after the fact. And you're like, if I was getting into this, I wish somebody would have told me to look out for this. Like, what would you offer to that person? Such a great question. Cause yeah, now I go to the meetups and I feel like I'm giving back and it's a really good feeling, but I'm also constantly reminding the new folks that I was them not that long ago. Um, but to your question of what I would advise. So we did get into a bad partnership at one point and we didn't know it was a bad partnership until, well, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, about <laughs> bad partnership. Just keep, keep going. I'm sorry. Go yeah, that's fine. Yeah. It was, um, we were well into the deal when we figured out that, Ooh, this wasn't a great partnership. Fortunately, we only got into one deal. It was a flipping, a flipping a property. And so we knew that that was kind of dating this one property. We were just kind of dating with this one property. We weren't signing up for multiple other deals. And, um, I think looking back, I, we knew these individuals, it was two different, um, two different entities, a couple and an individual that we had met at this local meetup and we had engaged with them for at least a year. So we felt like we knew them. Um, some of them we really related to more on a personal level and friend, like people that we could be friends with. And the other one definitely had the hustle to go out and find the deals and really was making moves. But in the end, there were things with both, both entities that, um, we weren't comfortable with and we didn't pursue any future deals with. But one thing I say is Google people's names online because there are things that may come up at some point that you're like, in retrospect, if I just Googled their name, I would have not done the deal to begin with because I wouldn't have wanted to be associated with it. Oh, yeah. Like if they're in like due a, diligence. Like if they were in like a thruple or something like that. Like, you know, that was that was I don't really thing. know what a thruple is. <laughs> I, I didn't either until Joey had a guest that he wanted to have on the podcast and I Googled their name and realized they had become famous in a different country um, for their 
triple relationship. That's where three people are in a relationship, not two people. So instead of a couple, it's okay. a triple. Yeah, I, I agree with the Google thing. I think that that's super interesting. So that that's one thing that that you looked at. Was there was there potentially other things that you saw? Like I, I don't think people really understand what that partnership looks like, right? They don't understand who's going to do what, who's going to be good with money, who's not going to be good with money, delegating the the, the assignments and, and who's going to be responsible. Were, were any of those things red flags or areas that, that, that came up other than the Google issues? Those weren't really red flags that came up on the front end because we did, we thought we were doing everything right. Like we had all been going to this local meetup group. We had all been consuming content about, you know, Again, listening to a lot of podcasts about when you get into a partnership, you want to put an operating agreement together. You want to clearly talk about who's bringing the money, who's running the deal, who's doing the the capital expenditures and overseeing the actual rehab. And so we spent a good deal of time going through that, um, going through that up front and hiring an attorney, not just going on, I don't know, legal zoom or somewhere and downloading an operating agreement or making a one page memo. We, we hired a attorney here in the central Florida area that does real estate to to write out the operating agreement. And in the end, what part of what fell apart was that um, one partner in particular didn't want to follow the operating agreement and something that we had all agreed to. And unfortunately, it was something that was duplicated. It was basically we had agreed to I'll be very clear. We had agreed to if anybody in the partnership had the real estate license, that individual would list this property when it was time to sell sell. And if multiple people did, then I don't I forget the specifics. We do get out whatever one person had their real estate license. So in the operating agreement, that individual was supposed to list that house for sale. And prior to getting to that point in this transaction in the split, the same partner was going to sell their own home and had hired this individual, <laughs> being very cagey, I'm sorry, but um, to list their home. And literally the night before it was supposed to go live, they called them up and decided they were going to sell it for sale by owner, which they sold it. It was great, but it was going back against their word. And it was very much in partnerships. We always have to think about this being a long-term engagement or long-term we're, we're in this for the long-term, like we're looking at the long-term benefits, not the quick wins. So in that specific, um, when it happened with their personal home, it was like, okay, you know, that's fine. They can pay for the photos and we'll move on because we've got, you know, this flip that we're doing and potentially other deals, right. If things go well, but then it happened with the flip as well, which was all spelled out in the operating agreement. It was very black and white it felt very much like a money grab opportunity. And so that was kind of the, again, it was it was in the operating agreement, but it became a point of contention with the group. And that was the only flip that we did with those particular partners. But my husband and I, we learned a tremendous amount and doing that built so much confidence where we then went and did our next deal, which was a six unit multifamily, just, the two, just my husband and I. Oh, so Kelly, this is really, really valuable information that you're sharing because the fact that you guys had it laid out black and white and it didn't happen, it really gave you a very objective way to look at that partnership without like, can you imagine if you, it wasn't black and white, right. And you had left that to very subjective, you know, you would have had a thought in your head as to how it should have gone down. They would have had a thought and then who wins, like who is really right in that situation. In this case, it, you know, it was very clearly laid out. So, so good, good on you that you guys had the foresight to hire 
an attorney and to do it properly because the outcome is, man, you learned a, a lesson, but it really wasn't as bad as it could have been. Right. That, that was a, that was a real um, grace in that process that, that happened for you. And so thank you for sharing that. I think as you are open about stuff like that, everybody that's listening is saying, wow, I add something I can take note on and I can implement myself. Now talk about from there. It sounds like you try to flip. You did the long-term rental on your primary residence. Now you've done a, a six unit with just you and your husband. How did it then lead to where you're at now to this is where we're all in on, and, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. Multifamily syndications is the, the niche for us. How did you get to that point? Yeah, you're not putting words in our mouth. That's absolutely true that um, large multifamily is is where we are at and where we're focused at. And I've got blinders on because it's easy to get to kind of squirrel and see all these shiny objects because there's so many great opportunities. There's so many ways to, to build wealth. But um, when we were going through our six unit, so we went from the flip to the six unit and we kind of came out of that flip going, we don't want partners. We want to do this on our own. And Fortunately, my husband and I, because again, we we were earning two incomes, but we were living on one. We had built up quite a little nest egg of being able to deploy capital. So we bought the six unit building here in Central Florida, and we did a complete renovation. It sat empty for almost a year. This was early COVID, so we had a lot of supply chain issues. We had a lot of labor issues, but either way, we were all in on it, and we knew that we could um, we could execute on it. And it was just the two of us. So we didn't have all these partnership issues. But about halfway through that project, we realized that having that building stabilized was not going to get us to financial independence. And owning a six-unit building, like that's pretty impressive for a lot of people. Most people don't own one, let alone a six-unit building. And so we, we realized we had to continue to scale. And I had been told a couple years ago, a couple years prior by somebody in that, in that meetup group who had a lot of experience and does a lot of ground-up development that I should do syndications. And I had this limiting belief that I couldn't because I had a full-time job. And I think once we got to the six unit and then all the stuff that went on with COVID, it was kind of a, like, let's just, I don't know, burn the bridges is the right term. I didn't burn any bridges, but I just totally leaned into it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. Let's, let's lean into syndication, see what we can do. And started networking found business partners who we've had a very good, fruitful, open, transparent, and aligned values. And we've done about five or six deals together in the last 18 months now. What specifically did that person in the group say, this is why you should do syndications? What were they referring to? The scalability and that the returns are your returns and growing wealth. You can do the same amount of work as you would do on a single family or a smaller building, you can do that same thing on a much larger apartment complex and get so many more returns out of it. Would you give as an example, talk a little bit about what that looks like? Cause there's so many people who haven't done that. I'd love for them to hear what that looks like. Yeah. So um, I'll use the six unit and then I'll use like a large apartment complex as an example, but on the six unit building, they're both commercial properties. So in commercial properties, you have this great little dial that you can change the, you know, can really impact the value. And that is increasing the income, reducing the expenses. And that, that increases your net operating income, which is how these properties are valued. And in a six unit building, I only have six units that I can raise rent on. So if I raise rent a hundred bucks for these six units, you're talking what $7,200 a year that I've, I've raised the rent. 
And depending on what your cap rate is, and now I'm not going to do math on my head, uh, but that's only going to that's only going to change the value of the property. I don't know. Let's call it ten twenty thousand. I don't know the exact number. But if I'm talking an apartment complex, if I have an apartment, 100 unit apartment complex, and I can increase rents $100 per unit, that's an extra $120,000 a year that I am that I'm adding to the income side, essentially the net operating income of the asset over a, I believe it's a 6% cap rate. And again, these are estimates, 6% cap rate. That's something like two to $3 million in value that you've created in this asset. And so even though the six unit, my husband and I, we own 100% and we're going to get all of that, all of that value add 10, 20,000 there. And then these large hundred plus unit apartment, apartment complexes that we only own a small sliver of, and we're sharing it with investors who choose to invest alongside us in the deal. That sliver that we own is massively bigger than the impact we were able to do on the six unit. And so that's where the scalability came in because it takes the same amount of time because you have full-time property managers on the property. We're asset managing it just like we're asset managing the six unit building. Well, I think it's critical that you clarified this. It wasn't necessarily that somebody saw something unique in you that they said, oh, you know, Kelly, you should do multifamily syndications because of your personality or your, you know, profile or your background or whatever. It was just simply a math problem. We kind of started the podcast talking about math. We're, we're getting close to the end here talking about math. Um, but was there anything about you as a person? Uh, we, we talk about the investor DNA profile that our clients all walk through our process and they figure that out through the process. Is there anything specific to you and, and or your husband that you guys point to and say, this is why investing in syndications really works for us um, outside of just the math? Yeah, I'll start by saying I'm a small town girl from Michigan who grew up to parents who worked in a factory. I'm not like, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I'm not the super special, you know, person. I do have a personality that I can communicate with other people very well and organize thoughts and um, articulate things well. And so there, you know, in syndications, there's roles for different people. Even if you're super analytic and introverted, but you're very analytical, there's still a role in a general partnership team on a syndication where you can focus on underwriting and understanding market analysis and the financial oversights. But for me, I've really been able to kind of focus and, you know, again, this individual, this is probably what he more saw besides the scalability is that I'm a communicator. I am a type D personality, so I'm very decisive. I also, you know, have some influence. I, for talking to disc profile, um, but just having a conversation and relating with individuals and, you know, having those conversations and understanding what they want from a financial goal perspective and seeing if what we do or what apartment, you know, passively investing in apartments or other types of syndication do, if that aligns with their goals. So good. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I know that you're, you're not only just here that you're sharing this, you're learning this, you're doing this yourself, but also you're helping other people on this journey. If there's people who are like, man, I, I relate to Kelly. I'd love to connect with her further. How would, uh, where would you send them to do that? Yeah, I love helping other people. Um, 
I am very active on LinkedIn, but the other place to get a hold of me and where I've got a great resources on my website, if you go to investwithkelly.com, I have a great 12-page ebook called The Financial Freedom Playbook. It is a guide to successfully investing in apartments, passively investing in apartments. And nice. love so, to connect with anyone. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for coming on and adding so much value. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening to this show. If you found value, take time to rate and review it. Share it with somebody else so that they can um, learn how to do this. And also make sure that you're hanging out with people that are asking you critical questions. If you're hanging out with people and they're not challenging what you're doing, maybe you're just not in the right group. Find people. If you need a community, hey, look no further than wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash community. And we've got one right here for you. As always, have an amazing day. This has been the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to break free of the Wall Street mindset and begin building wealth on your own terms in places you understand so that your wealth will never run dry. See you next episode.